Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan, and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Noise Before Defeat podcast with Senator Jim Molan. We have spent the past five weeks diving deep into our national security landscape, and today marks the final episode of this series. If you haven't been with us, I'd recommend heading back to catch up on our earlier episodes, as this one ties all our conversations together with an action plan for the future. Welcome back, Senator. Yes, thanks, Sarah. And this really is the culmination of the six podcasts. And it's the challenge that you and I face today to bring it all home. <laughs> we started off by saying that most Australians thought that we were doing enough on defence and on national security because we've been aiming to spend 2% of our GDP on defence. I've made the point that national security is far broader than just defence and covers every aspect of government and society. We also spoke about the fact that major wars, unlike the small ones I fought in, are not a thing of the past and could still happen. Yes, and you've argued that major wars, especially ones between China and the US, are still very possible. And I think you said moving towards being more likely, leading to a need for some healthy paranoia among us all. Yes, and, and healthy paranoia is very, very wise. And <laughs> I did say that, and we've discussed the appalling nature of modern war. And it's such an awful proposition that everything we do must be focused on stopping it. Australia's view on our security has been shaped by the fact that market forces and globalisation have delivered great prosperity to this country over the last 75 years. And this has been facilitated by the strength of our great ally, the US, but that's now changed. US power is not what it was and challenges have risen. And we've also spoken about the vulnerabilities. We have vulnerabilities. Some we create ourselves internally by allowing ourselves to become overly dependent on foreign supply chains. And some are forced on us from overseas, such as the illegal occupation of maritime areas or regional border disputes that threaten sea lines of communications. Mm. But all is not really gloom and doom. Australia has an extraordinary defence potential, far greater than most Australians realise. And we spoke about that in the last podcast. But until you organise it through security, through strategy, it's all just potential. And Sarah, as I said, today we need to bring all this together in the form of a strategy that makes us secure and prepares us for the future. Prepared for conflict and war for the first time in our history. What a revolution. <laughs> and a strategy is only ever 10% of the task but it's a critical 10%. And with the other 90% of the journey towards a truly secure nation being the implementation of the strategy we decided on. And if it's good enough for us to regularly stress test our banks because they're so important to us, why is it that we don't ever stress test something as important as national security? 
So in those previous five podcasts, Sarah, we've come a long, long way. (laughs) We certainly have, and you've now led us through a lot of information. But perhaps we could start off today with simply asking, in light of everything we've gone through, what do you want for Australia? What do you really hope to see? Yeah, and I guess that's a good place to start, and it's the most important question that we could ever ask. What I want is for Australia, for the first time in its post-Federation history, to be prepared for our uncertain future. By being prepared, perhaps we will not have to endure the appalling possibilities that lie before us. Given what we have endured in the past, it could be an awful lot worse than what we have just come through. Mm. Now, I don't advocate irrational preparation. I don't advocate panic. I don't say we should do this at the expense of our freedoms or our economy or even globalisation. I'm not denying particularly what this government has done brilliantly since 2013 in the field of national security. The preparation I want is the logical, calm preparation based on facts and knowledge, rather than doing it just whatever we can too late in a crisis as we've done for most of our existence as a nation. You know, I don't even want the implementation to start now because Priority for the Morrison government must go to getting the economy back on its feet. And the greatest thing that we can do for this nation and for national security right at this moment is to recover the economy. The economy is the basis of our national security because it gives us the funds to prepare and it maintains that critical social cohesion. But the thinking, the preparation, The examining of processes must start now, and it can start now. The Morrison government has proven during the pandemic that it can do many things at the same time. And thinking to produce a comprehensive strategy, not just for the military, but for the entire nation, doesn't cost a cent and should not compete for critical government brain space. Uh, And as I've argued, none of us know how much time we have to prepare. So let's start as soon as possible. I think we mentioned in an earlier podcast the idea that everything is overkill until you actually need it. So, of course, it's so important to plan for things before they become necessary. So as a very first step, what do you think we need to acknowledge intellectually? Of course, the thinking has to happen before there can be any doing. What do you see as the main things to leave at the forefront of our minds from all these conversations? Well, it's a good way of putting it because... Deriving a strategy is an essentially intellectual process, but it does require a few decisions and it does require a few resources, and those particularly are of smart people. You know, I want Australia as the very first step to acknowledge that we face markedly changed strategic circumstances, which is a way a politician talks about the threat towards us. And we need to acknowledge that there are implications for this nation of that change. The threat that I see is emerging now and we need to act now, not when the wolf is at the door and that's been our historical reaction to crisis. We need to act now. Many countries that share our national philosophy are threatened by a rising power that is hostile to everything we are, free, democratic, prosperous, occupying a full continent and an ally of the United States. We haven't seen anything like this since 1945. This is what the Prime Minister means when he talks about the 20s and the 30s. Perhaps he's not saying that war is going to break out in the modern equivalent of 1939, although that may happen. 
but a serious shifting of power relativities is what he's talking about. Who is the big boy on the block? The power relativities, the strength in our region is changing from an ally of ours, the United States, to an authoritarian power who is very assertive and even aggressive. And that power, Sarah, the power of China, has proven it has no respect for international laws, as has been shown in many ways, most markedly, I guess, in the South China Sea. In full view of a weak US president, the West did nothing in the South China Sea. China saw our weakness and has taken lessons from that. History might be echoing from the 20s and the 30s. It may never repeat itself, but as people say, sometimes it echoes. And Australia must accept that tension may lead to war between the US and China. And the result of that war will shape the world, and particularly Australia, and it will shape us for decades to come. We need to be prepared, and we are not prepared. And who does that lie with? Only the government can do this, not the private sector, not the people, not our allies. This is government leadership, pure and simple. And it is federal government leadership primarily. And if it's one thing that the Morrison government can do, it is lead. And so based on those intellectual foundations, what do we actually have to do? What actions does that translate into? Well, and and this is where the rubber hits the road because primarily we need to build a self-reliant Australia. Uh, not just militarily, but across the entire nation, which can secure our future. But we must also build alliances, be protected by them and be a significant contributor to them. The days of mindlessly and selfishly hoping the US will be our saviour in national security have gone, if they ever were there. The days of being complacent about national security are over, and it's time for some constructive paranoia, as we've discussed. The world has changed. We must accept that this is our responsibility and we must act. And when it comes down to what specifically we must do to achieve the aims of self-reliance, my suggestion to everyone is that we leave that for those who are going to write the detailed national security strategy. I could come up with a whole range of ideas, but that means nothing. What I'm trying to say to people is let's be self-reliant, let's pull together an organisation that can analyse this and look at it and come up with the really specific actions that we need to take. And I guess that starts from all the vulnerabilities that we've spoken about domestically and internationally and making sure we're addressing those in that strategy. Uh, Yes, and we've spoken about vulnerabilities a lot in two podcasts and they are significant. Australia has them at the moment. Even in facing a period of significant tension short of war, much less war, we have vulnerabilities. If these are not eradicated or managed, they will prevent us defending ourselves and may lead from tension to war and then to defeat. We must address those vulnerabilities one by one as quickly as possible, or those that challenge us will just keep on exploiting our weaknesses. Just addressing our vulnerabilities is a strong signal in itself that Australia is on the path to self-reliance and that we are to be taken seriously as a nation. And that's what we're aiming at. We are aiming at being strong so as to deter conflict. And that strength through self-reliance, the concept of self-reliance is something you have spoken about consistently through this series. If you had to comment on how we could actually achieve that, what do you think we should do? Well, we talk about self-reliance all the time and, and the government has made a superb start with its recently announced manufacturing policy and with its supporting budget measures. 
and these are being implemented now. They're a really good start. The policies are mainly driven by commercial ideas and by a reaction to the COVID recovery. That will take us pretty well in the right direction. In my view, we do need to bring national security into this, not just commercial ideas. And we need to bring national security into manufacturing, not just in defence industry, and defence industries is, is those industries that directly support defence and which are starting, I've got to say, to go in the right direction as sovereign industries. But we need to bring national security into all industry and manufacturing as a whole. But only by doing this do we get the resilience of our society to face up to the future. So to do this... You know, we, we need national security advice in the preparation of the nation, particularly manufacturing, but a million other areas, and not only in defence industry, not only to come out of COVID and recover the economy, but for comprehensive national security reasons. So, Sarah, I believe that we need a new national security system within government. Uh, we need it within the bureaucracy and we need it to manage the road to both self-reliance across the nation, but also any subsequent more complex crisis, such as a regional war. And such a system will refine the kind of leadership that we've seen the coalition government show since 2013, but most markedly under Prime Minister Morrison during covid you know, the current committee-based, process-driven system to manage national security, which was developed over the last 75 years to manage lesser problems when the US managed a big security problem for Australia, a system which stumbles through even those lesser problems and is sometimes bypassed as crises arise, must accept much blame for much of the current vulnerable state of this nation. The existing national security system can be a rice bowl for far too many people. And we in Australia can no longer afford rice bowls. <laughs> so what you're saying, and something I now really appreciate after the past couple of weeks of conversations, is that national security is far more than just defence. Uh, correct. And, and national security is a national responsibility. And in times like this, we as a nation cannot throw buckets of money at the ADF and think we've solved the national security challenge. It takes a nation to defend a nation. But, but look, there, there, is really, there is a really interesting comparison that I reckon can be made here to illustrate this point. I believe that a contradiction exists between how intelligence is handled as part of the national security system and how national security itself is handled. And this is important. Intelligence has been examined time and again by the most capable officials and a system that seems to suit the current times has been successfully adopted. Following these examinations, the National Intelligence Organisation, and that's the name of the body itself, the National Intelligence Organisation has been created, which prepares and coordinates the intelligence bodies and advises the Prime Minister directly, regularly, and even during crisis, as you'd expect. The product of that advice then goes into the government cabinet and committee system through the Prime Minister himself. But here's the point. Intelligence gives us a very good idea of what might happen to us in the future. And if we only have intelligence produced by the National Intelligence Organisation without an equivalent national security organisation, perhaps we might call it that, we're likely to know perfectly when we're about to be defeated and not to be able to do bloody well anything about it. <laughs> 
Yes, that would be such a disappointing situation. And that is something that's important to define, as you mentioned at the very beginning, a big part of developing strategy is to evaluate its performance and define both what works and what doesn't. So what would you describe as a failure on this front? Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's very important that we define what failure is. And I've done this in all the strategies in peace and war that I've been involved in. People often concentrate only on success, but if you want to know what you need to do, you must also consider failure. And I define failure as being when the government faces a regional war, which we cannot stop. When the government faces a regional war and wants to either contribute forces to an alliance or hold forces for the defence of Australia, or both, as I think will be necessary, but the government finds that it cannot do either. Uh, because it's not prepared the nation to support those forces, it's got no exports to generate finances, it cannot import critical items, it has an immature manufacturing base to support the people and a war effort, it's got no significant strategic reserves of essential items not produced in Australia, it finds that the ADF still lacks the lethality, mass and sustainability to both defend the nation in the face of a modern war or to assist allies, and the government finds that Australian cities and facilities are vulnerable to direct attack by cyber, by missiles, or by a denial of sea trade. So that, in my view, Sarah, is monumental failure by government. And as a government, we should never expect to be forgiven for not preparing. And so on the flip side, how would you define or what would you see as a national security success of a strategy? Well, for the first time in our history, since Federation, we will be successful in fact and in the eyes of the people if we secure our sovereignty by being prepared for the uncertain future we face through a policy of national self-reliance based on a comprehensive nationwide strategy implemented through a modern national security organisation, the equivalent of the National Intelligence Organisation, which can both prepare Australia for high levels of tension as well as advise and manage all levels of crisis and war. To me, that's success. And to that end, translating that into practical action to be taken, of course, it's important to define success and failure of a system in the abstract. But can you take us through what you see as our next steps? What do you think we should actually do next? Well, I, I, I certainly hope I can. And as I said before, the strategy itself will define the specifics. But the first thing that we should do is, as we've discussed, acknowledge the need for change. Secondly, we should begin the process of that change. And that's really, in my view, all about thinking. If we acknowledge the need to change and then rush into doing things, we just create so much waste. And as my US boss in Iraq used to say to me, Jimmy would say, don't rush to failure. <laughs> that is so important. And a key part of this second stage as I said, is thinking. And thinking doesn't cost much at all. The product of the thinking should be the basis of a national security strategy and the organisation to produce it. So there's the first real actual step. And others with more bureaucratic experience than me may have a more sophisticated suggestion, but I suggest we form a small national security organisation with a few very clever staff headed by a national security advisor, as other countries have been doing for years and decades, to advise the Prime Minister directly in the same way that the National Intelligence Organisation advises the PM. And the functions of the National Security Organisation would be twofold. 
advised the Prime Minister on the national security preparation required across the nation, across the entire nation, to secure our sovereignty by being prepared for an uncertain future through self-reliance. So advising the PM on how to prepare. And the second job would be to advise the PM on national security issues during national security crises and during contingencies. But still the primary product of that organisation, of the national security advisor at the top, would be to produce at regular intervals a national security strategy for consideration by the Cabinet and assist the Prime Minister to assess its implementation. So both the organisation and the person. Yeah, but I assume that part of any national security approach is how government would then actually express that as a policy. So can you talk us through that next important step? Oh, yes, and that's a, that's a very, very important step. The government should adopt a national security approach, and it might look something like this. The national security vision might be Australia, strong, prosperous and free. So that's a four-word strategy, a four-word slogan. <laughs> so we've increased over the years from three words to four words. National security vision, Australia, strong, prosperous and free. And you think about those words and everyone would be happy with that. But now we get down to tin tax, really. The national security policy should be, quite simply, national self-reliance within alliances. And that's an important point, national self-reliance within alliances. And the national security strategy itself might be that Australia should be prepared for the uncertain future we face through a policy of national self-reliance based on a comprehensive nationwide strategy implemented through a modern national security organisation, the equivalent of the National Intelligence Organisation, which can both prepare Australia for high levels of tension as well as advise and assist in the management of all levels of crisis of war. And they're just words, but in government... And in most things, you've got to start with the words. And we should be judged on whether we can then implement those words, but the words are always the place to start. Yeah, amidst all these big ideas and conversations, it is an important and clarifying task, I think, to whittle it all down to words as a starting point. But then at some point, of course, we have to implement those words and make it all happen. So how would we go about that? Well, that, that's right. And and. Implementation is the third step after acknowledging the need and producing the outline strategy. And a key part of that outline strategy is establishing the national security organisation to produce a formal national security strategy, then implementation in line with that strategy. If we've got the strategy, we can begin to implement. And my view is that the most important thing government can do in the short term, and I define the short term as the period in which we manage COVID health and economic consequences, is to recover the national economy because the economy is the foundation of our national security. Most people would agree with that. The implementation of a national security strategy and the expenditure required could then begin in the medium going into the longer term. Never get confused about what our main priority which is, which is COVID and the economy. So how long do you think that would take? Years? Well, uh, as I said, let's not rush to failure. If the need for a self-reliant approach to national security was acknowledged before the end of 2020, for example, a national security organisation might be set up in 2021, able to produce a basic national security strategy addressing the, the security obligations of defence, cyber, manufacturing, diplomacy, health, 
energy and fuels, society, finances, education, borders, intelligence, food and infrastructure and anything else that I can't think of at the moment. This could then be submitted to Cabinet by the Prime Minister and considered by Cabinet. So it shouldn't be a long period of time. As I've said time and time again, we should aim to have this process in train within three years. Well, I definitely have a much deeper understanding of the issues at play here after the past six weeks, and I hope our listeners do too. I would ask if you have any parting words for us, but Senator, I'm absolutely sure that you do. So what would you like to leave us with? Well, it's been been a long journey, Sarah, and I thank you for the opportunity to do it with you. And, you know, most people think that the Australian experience of conflict is the Anzac tradition. That's the current view, the common view, the view that's been in this country for many, many years. But I really disagree with that. The Australian experience of conflict is unpreparedness. And that unpreparedness has been overcome by the Anzacs and at the expense of their lives and their freedom. And we have no right to do that yet again. Many used to say that we got no threat for 10 years because it would take an enemy 10 years to gain the capability to attack us. So we don't need to prepare. The 10-year idea has now been officially rejected. And the silliness of that view was that if it was going to take 10 years for an enemy to be prepared, why is there an implied belief in Australia that it takes much less time for Australia to prepare to defend itself. (laughs) We've now officially acknowledged that the 10-year rule is out, but we have not said as a government responsible for national security what our estimate might be. And as I'm yet to fully understand, I don't know why then we are allocating $270 billion for equipment to the ADF over the next 10 years. So that confuses me and I think it probably confuses a lot of people. We need to be prepared to give an estimate to bring the Australian people with us. We continually talk around the kind of issues which you and I have spoken about and if we can achieve just the fact that we're talking and listening and thinking about them, we've come a long, long way. So I believe it's prudent to work on an assumption that our uncertain future may peak in some way in the form of war in no less than three years from now. And this should be our national readiness framework. That is what we should plan against. Really hammering home that need for an abundance of prudence, as you've called it. (laughs) And to wrap up the series, may I pose a final key question? If the ADF needs $270 over the next 10 years to face an uncertain future, what does the rest of the nation need to face that same future? Yes, that's that's a key question. It's a good one to finish on. It's not as though the ADF and the nation as a whole face different strategic environments in the future. Uh, And the ADF will be useless if it's not supported by the people and by the nation. So if we think that the ADF needs 270 billion worth of new equipment, and we will probably pay roughly 500 plus billion dollars to the ADF over that same period of time, If we think that it needs $270 billion worth of new equipment to fight some kind of future war, as you ask, what does the rest of the nation need to be as resilient as we're trying to make the ADF? And I can only repeat what I guess should become my mantra. (laughs) Australia needs to secure its sovereignty by being prepared for the uncertain future we face through a policy of national self-reliance based on a comprehensive nationwide strategy 
implemented through a modern national security organisation, the equivalent of the National Intelligence Organisation, which can both prepare us for high levels of tension, as well as advise and manage all levels of crisis and war for the PM. And the way to do that is quite simply by a national security approach based on a national security strategy. And Sarah, if we don't do this, then all our efforts are, as Sun Tzu tells us, nothing but noise before defeat. Well, we've come a full circle there and I have a much greater appreciation for that quote and, of course, a much deeper understanding of the national security landscape. If you have any questions or would like to read further, please visit the Senator's website, which is at jimmolan.com. And there, if you like, you can sign up to his fortnightly newsletter to keep in touch. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. Thank you all so much for joining us for this six-part series, Noise Before Defeat.